0: Turn with me in your Bibles or look there on your outline to Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. This is the <clears throat> largest of the divisions that I am taking within this chapter. It focuses on Abraham and Sarah and their offspring and their grandchildren. And it really uh, is necessary to take this as a, as a unit to best uh, see the fruit of faith in the life of uh, the patriarchs and the lives of the patriarchs. Patriarchs meaning the fathers Uh, the fathers of our faith. And so we will look today at these verses before us. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. Hear God's word. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are Abraham's God and ours. We praise your name and your perfect faithfulness. We thank you for the grace by which we are saved through your gift of faith. May each of us appreciate Jesus Christ more today as we consider your word and its application to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the opening verses of this cherished chapter of the book of Hebrews, we learn a description of faith that is important as a guidepost for the rest of our understanding this chapter. In the opening verses, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their verification or their confirmation or their commendation. Now, as we search the scriptures for a holistic understanding of this concept of faith, we recognize from Ephesians 2, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. So salvation is the gift of God, and he accomplishes it by the application of grace through Christ with the instrument of faith. In other words, God gives you faith. You didn't muster it up. You didn't make yourself believe. You didn't try harder, bear down, You know, think about it hard and believe. Rather, God gave you supernaturally the ability to trust in him. So the assurance of things hoped for, where does the assurance come from? It comes from God's spirit testifying to your spirit that you are a son or daughter of God and can trust him. And that has always been the case. This understanding of faith unifies salvation across the biblical history that's laid out for us. The same faith that God used to save Abraham is the same faith that he's used to save you. And this is the real purpose behind studying this hall of faith, or the hall of God's faithfulness, we might say. The first uh, sermon in this division, verses 4 through 7, dwelled on the fruit of faith before the flood. Today, it's the fruit of faith in the lives of the patriarchs. Next week, the fruit of faith during the times of Moses. And finally, the fruit of faith from the time of the judges to exile. All of this to say that real faith that God gives bears itself out in fruit. And today we see the fruit that comes forth in the lives of Abraham's life and his progeny, those who came after him. And please notice, hopefully you already have, that this group that we're talking about, they're a broken group. I hope no one here looks at, at Abraham or Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, and think, boy, they're so different than me. You know, they're, they're really mighty. They're really holy. Whereas for me, I, I, can't, I can't do what Abraham did. You know, I can't be that kind of faithful person or have that kind of faith. And I think the very point of this text is that you all know the true story behind many of these people. If you're new to studying scripture, it may be, uh, that you're holding out these folks. Well, as you study, you'll start realizing that Abraham, for all the great things he did as a person, most of what I remember, the things that he did, that were foolish. I mean, how could he possibly give his wife over to a ruler? I'd assume die before doing that. But he immediately is like ready to say, "She's my sister." What a guy. Sarah's not exactly what I call a picture of patience. Who would give their husband to another woman to have a baby? I mean, that's what she did. So don't go too far on the road of saying what they're doing is wholly other, and I could have nothing to do with it. I could never do that. Jacob was a deceiver. Go down the list of these folks, and really what it illustrates is that it is God's gift. It is God's doing. It's all of God's grace that broken people like you and I could be used in such great ways to progress redemption. And I would suggest to you that that's the same for us. He continues to use people like us for this, and we'll see that in this text today. I would like us to analyze this passage by seeing particular fruits of faith, things that come forth from faith as an outworking of God's work in us. First of all, please note that faith enables us to do whatever God requires, no matter how difficult it is. Faith is what gives us the ability to do whatever God requires. Look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Already in verse 8, we see Abraham having the ability to do what God requires, even though it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, and it would be very, very difficult for him. Abraham lived in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is common uh, to the southern part of Iraq. You've seen the pictures come back of how wonderful a place it looks to be, fertile and so forth. Well, actually, that particular place, that city of Ur, was very fertile, because the Euphrates River would flood and... As things go in the desert, that was an oasis, and it was an established city that people knew all from, all from all around, very well established. And so Abraham had to leave that establishment at age 75, an established life. He had a lot of money, had a lot of stuff, and he had to leave that to go to a place of an inheritance. And of course, you all know that as soon as you turn to the north in the Ur of the Chaldees, and you could look for miles and you see absolutely nothing. Now, if you turn to the east, on the other hand, you would look for miles, and you would see absolutely nothing. But if you turn to the west, on the other hand, you would see more of nothing. If you turn to the south, there's even more nothing. So go out, Abraham, and he says yes to that, and I'll give you an inheritance. Now, wait a minute. What I have now, comfort, establishment, uh, things to give my children and my grandchildren, and I'm going to go out. And I'm going to do it at age 75. Now, they live longer than we did at this time. The age span starts to get uh, progressively uh, lower and lower as time goes on. But they live to ripe old ages in this time. And here's 75-year-old Abraham, established life, and he's going to leave. Now, my father father is 74 years old. He's almost exactly 40 years older than I am. And I have on many occasions tried to subtly and not so subtly... Invite my parents to come live here so they could be closer to their grandchildren. I have a sister who lives in Florida, doesn't have children, so they could come live here and they can go fly to see her instead of flying to both places and just not having as much direct connection with my kids as I'd love them to have. And they love it for that reason. But I can tell with my dad, 74 years old, that'd be tough. 60 years he's lived where he's lived. All his friends are there. They, they enjoy one another. My dad has had opportunity to witness to these, these guys, and you've got to see that in wor- at work. So it it would be difficult, and he is is toyed with it, but I have to be honest and say that would be a very difficult thing for him at his age to do. It It would be unfair to him to put that kind of pressure on him if he didn't just naturally feel like that was the right move, even though it's my desire. So try to appreciate how settled Abraham is, yet given a vision of something that he would never see. Do you realize that Abraham and Sarah never actually got to own a piece of land except for their own graves in the promised land themselves? But they went out. They gave up a life of of establishment for a life living in tents, and they gave the same thing to their children. Not exactly what we think of as the American dream. And they went out, faith enabled them to do this, and we see it continuing in verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." He spoke a different language, at least a different dialect. He dressed a different way. He looked a different way. Uh, He was a foreigner. That was difficult. He went out from a place where he was established to a place where no one knew him, and he didn't fit in. And only faith could give him this supernatural vision to go forth and live in this way. He went from this established life to one of nomadic wandering. And he brought his family into this. He was able to obey God's difficult request Because of the word inheritance and the vision and promise for what God would do in his life. Verse 10 gives us that driving motivation. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is a wonderful picture of how we ought to look at the world. In other words, the cities that we have are fading. They're feeble. They rock to and fro. They're not stable. Abraham knew this. He lived in a great city. He had heard word of great cities, but he knew that what he really longed for is an eternal city, one that would never uh, come and go with whoever was occupying it next. If you think about our own country, we're not very old as it goes in the world uh, scheme of things, and if you think of all the big cities we have, what are they called? Like New York, or New This, or New That, or were named after other cities that have been around a lot longer. We tend to think of uh, cities as somehow always being there, but they change. Uh, I've talked to some of you who grew up in this area, went away for 15 years, and you're back, and you're just marveling that where we are now, there used to be horses running, literally. Things change. There's, there's all sorts of change that, eco- that occurs. And Abraham sees this, and he knows this is true of the world of men. And so when he has the opportunity for an eternal inheritance or that which strives towards things that are eternal, he says that I'm going to go after this because the designer is God. The foundations are real. They're eternal. They don't change with people's changing. And that vision of something he could not yet see drove him to obey God. Faith enables us to do whatever God requires, even when we cannot see, maybe even our own lifetime, the full realization of the blessing that comes from God's will. Look at verse 17 and following. This is where we have the ultimate picture of faith enabling someone to do whatever God requires. Really the unthinkable. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What would empower Abraham to obey God with such a request? I truthfully, truthfully believe that Abraham trusted that God would either not let Isaac die or that he would bring him back from the dead. I truly believe this. When you look at Genesis 22, verses 4 through 6, the words of Abraham, listen to what he says to his servant as he's ready to leave with Isaac. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, uh, in his hand, the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. So he told the servants, we're going to worship and we're going to come back. He believed he was going to come back with his son. This is faith. This is not something he could have humanly come up with. This is something God gave him, a bigger vision for why God would call him to do this. It was a test, but it was also a way to display God's glory through this man's obedience. He truly believed God would not preempt his promise to make of him a great nation, starting with this long-awaited son born to him in his old age, Isaac. Jerry Bridges captures a relationship between obedience and belief in God's promise as well, when he says in his great book, The Pursuit of Holiness, faith and holiness are inextricably linked. Obeying the commands of God usually involves believing the promises of God. In other words, you obey because you believe the overall promises of God to be true. That's ultimately what motivates you. You believe he's true. That's why you ultimately obey. Let me just ask you this. I know that none of us are thinking in terms of God asking us to sacrifice our child or do things uh, even to the level that Abraham had to do, although some of you may be, some of you have been called to foreign lands to go to other places to be uh, a beacon of God's glory there and sharing Christ. But for most of us, the decisions that we make each day, the things that God requires of us, they're smaller. But please, brothers and sisters, don't think of them as any less important in the bigger scheme of God's kingdom. In other words, there are things that you know right now that God wants you to do, but you're putting it off. Don't resist the work that God's doing in you to make things right. It may be popular and okay to have broken relationships that we can just kind of lord over people because they did something wrong to us. You know, that kind of thing where we keep one up on them. But God says that we should be peacemakers, that we should be reconcilers, ministers of reconciliation both with us and God and then with each other. And so if you know you have a broken relationship, I, I assure you, That God requires you to do what you can in God's power to make that right. So by faith, knowing that he is just, knowing that this is what he desires, and that ultimately there's a greater good that this accomplishes, would you go forth and make that relationship right? Would you be the one that starts to say, he did it to me or she did it to me? Pay never mind of that. Go and make it right to the best of your ability. You can't control what someone else does. But this is one little way that it, it can get a hold of our lives. And we could be paralyzed by relationships that need reconciliation and we refuse even though given given the light of the holy spirit's uh, outlook on scripture and in our life we still avoid don't let that happen maybe it's a confession of sin that needs to happen you know god requires it it may make us uncomfortable do it giving up a pet sin maybe some of you are being called to the mission field or to a change in ministry somehow in your life, some move that has to be made in order to put you in a place where you can serve in a more unfettered way. Don't resist God's call on your life. I don't mean just come up with it in a vacuum. I mean test in the way we would always test God's will, by his word, through prayer, by godly counsel. But in the end, don't put off what God's calling you to do or requiring you to do. Respond by faith. It is something that he gives you. It's not something you can muster, but at the same time, he involves us in the process. God's gift of faith enables us to do whatever God requires. Maybe it's just a small thing like giving up a week of your vacation to go on a mission trip with us as a church. It could be something else, giving up certain nights to make sure that you can come and fellowship with other people in the, around the word, in the Lord. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, uh, they're not inconsequential. <clears throat> they're important parts of your life, and they're important, parts, important outlets for the faith God has given you. Please notice also something uh, more briefly, but uh, very interesting. Faith encourages us even in the face of apparent impossibilities. If you look at verse 11 and verse 12, talk about an impossibility to have a 90-year-old woman uh, and a man who's even older bear a child. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead... Well, that's hard on poor Abraham, isn't it? Because you know what they're saying. Okay? But then again, after Abraham and Isaac, he probably strutted around a little while for there around the town. Let them all know. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. God picks out this little pagan man and his wife to begin his church. He doesn't pick out two young, fertile, energetic, adventurous people with all sorts of connections to begin this great building. Instead, he picks Abram and Sarah, old, set in their ways, and patient, sends them to a place where they don't know anyone and have no networks, and they're somewhat pragmatic in their journey. Faith encourages us even in the face of apparent impossibilities and even maybe your own inabilities. In fact, that seems to be the modus operandi of God in progressing his plan of redemption to use the most unlikely people. Rather than pick the powerful, the ones you and I might pick, or when you're ready to pick the basketball team, the first pick, that you want on your team, he picks the smallest one. The one with the limp. The one that's never seen a basketball. That's who God picks, is a way to show further his glory by using broken vessels. One has only to see the scriptures laying out of people uh, to recognize that he always seems to go with this method. Abraham and Sarah, of course, are an example. Jacob the deceiver is an example. Balaam and his donkey. I mean, he could have used an angelic herald, but used a donkey a donkey to advance the redemptive story. The boy David, not this grown uh, David that we all know as the mighty king. We're talking about this little guy who couldn't even fit into the armor of the one who was called to be king, yet God uses him. Daniel, a young man, used uh, of God to stand up and become an old man of faith. The boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to stand in front of this uh, king and refuse to bow at the price of death. God uses them, not these strong warriors that go down in the annals of Israelite history, but rather teenagers, young Queen Esther. How about the locust-eating John the Baptist? There's a picture of a hero for you. The young Virgin Mary, the hot-tempered monk named Luther years later. Before him, the immoral man Augustine. You know, you think of Augustine, you think of what he wrote later. Do you know how immoral he was? He had at least one child, illegitimately. And this is St. Augustine we're talking about. God keeps up, even after the Bible, continuing to use broken people. He uses Luther, who is hot-tempered at least. A sickly scholar named Calvin. We think of Calvin often as this probably strong-minded man who wrote and wrote and wrote. The fact is he only lived to be 52 and a half years old, and he was sick the better part of 30 years of his life. And God used that broken person to do what he did. And you can go on and on and on in your own lives. Think of the people that God used for you. Were they perfect people? Were they people that had it all squared away? Or was it their brokenness coupled with redemptive grace that made you see that there's hope for you too? Because I would suggest to you that faith encourages us even in the face of apparent impossibilities and our own inabilities. That's when he works the strongest and the mightiest and his glory shows forth the most. Thirdly, though, I would point out to you from our text that faith allows us to live towards an eternal vision rather than being enslaved to this temporal world's inferior offerings. Abraham had tasted all the things the world had to offer. He was rich. He lived in a big city. But he recognized that there is so much more than that. Verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward To the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He had been under man's rule. He may have been a ruler himself. And he recognized how inferior we are as rulers, as commanders, as people who keep cities, order cities. We're so inferior. We just don't do a good job. To look forward to Christ as king over it all is something that he certainly, certainly saw as part of his inheritance. And wanted to go for it when he saw that as an opportunity to get out from under humanity unredeemed humanity. Verse 13, kind of a summary verse, but says similarly, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These all died in faith refers back to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, those who had come before. They had not received the things themselves in their totality, but they saw them in the distance. They saw an eternal vision of God's glory. And they saw how important it is to be united with that vision, one that lasts. I mean, how many of you, honestly, are concerned that no one is even going to remember who you are when you're dead? I think, truthfully, if we think about it, if you stop long enough, we're so busy in America, we just keep, keep moving so we don't have to stop and think about it. But honestly, I've thought about that. What record of my existence would be there if I dropped dead today? And I would have to say, truthfully, that it would not take long, it would not take long uh, for people to pretty much forget me. Honestly, if we're really honest with ourselves. However, those efforts that are made towards eternal things, whether they remember Tony particularly or not, doesn't so much fire me up, is that the things that I'm contributing to now will so far outlast me. And that in glory, it will be part of the reason why we worship God, for what he did in the generations. That's what gives me fuel today. When I think of the ministries we're part of as a church or as an individual, I think of my own children in the efforts. And all the same frustrating things you all go through, I go through myself with my own children, thinking what a failure I am as a father. I can't get them to obey absolutely everything I tell them. Can you imagine that? Or even some of it, or even a portion of it, at any rate. uh, I know what that feels like, but I do think that there's something that we're working together, my wife and I, and you together with us, that's going to outlast them and their children and their children's children, and that helps me with the details of today. It's an eternal vision towards something God is doing. It's not just way out there. It's right now in the details, looking forward to what God's going to do as these details work themselves out, and it gets my eyes off of me and my personal legacy and on to God's glory through all the generations. That's what we're striving for. That's what fires me up. So whether or not people remember Tony really cannot be what's important to me. It's that I'm doing things that consistently declare the glory of God to the next generation. And I think being part of a church, part of Christ's effort and commission, there is nothing, nothing that contributes to that more than being an active member, an active participant in Christ's church. Not just a pastor, I'm talking all of us, the kingdom of priests that we are, striving towards that end with that priority. Faith allows us to recognize our true citizenship is eternal, In God's kingdom. And that helps us now with the details. Look at verse 14. It's all in the mindset. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That is, they have not arrived yet. They're looking for something greater. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if they're always dwelling on the past, when they come to moments of discomfort that they will come to as they're plowing new ground, as they're going forth by faith... They're going to look at those other times and say, boy, it was easier. Why am I doing this? I'm going to go back to that. And you all know the darkest example of this. It's one that I always get embarrassed by whenever I read in the scripture, namely because I wonder if I would have been one of the ones who got on the other side of the Red Sea, literally watched the strongest fighting force in the world get swallowed up, and then just a month later actually utter the words, maybe we ought to go back there. But truthfully, I mean, there are ways we say that. Uh, When we leave a sin, God delivers us from a sin, that consumes our life or wrecks some portion of our life and we get in that moment of silence uh, and in, in the quiet of our own mind with no one else knowing and you say maybe I ought to go back there and we lose sight of the eternal vision the greater things God has for us we have to be looking forward to where we're going so that we live faithfully and purposefully now verse 16 but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one that is they've never they never say, I've arrived, or we're where we need to be in this life. We are constantly striving for God's greater glory. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So there is an end goal that God has for us, which will be continued fellowship with him, but the process of moving towards that end goal is the life we now live, and that's what gives it so much importance, so much excitement, so much zeal, movement to do things that God has called us to do. William Lane says it well when describing how this kind of forward look drove Abraham and should drive us. In many persons, there is found little or no interest in spiritual reality. They express a basic satisfaction with day to day routine, but exhibit no concern for where they are going. They have no goals. They display no strivings. They appear to be motivated by no dreams. They suffer from what can be labeled as destination sickness. They have no defined destination, they're merely drifting. Abraham did not suffer from destination sickness for all his many foibles he constantly moved forward towards the promise that God laid out before him we see very humanly that he took a few steps back and went a few steps forward but he always was moving forward as a general as a general movement in his life and I think that's true the Christian life we go through ebbs and flows and we make bad choices along the way but God's promises work themselves out and we grow in Christ's likeness in that process And I would suggest to you, in a macro sense, that's what we're about here at Redeemer. That's what you should be about in your own family. Take time just to come up with a family mission and vision. That is your personal family, how you will bring glory to God as a family, and how that looks, and what activities I sign up for, what job I take. Instead of having everything defined by what job I take, that kind of happens today, and, and it's an honorable thing to provide for our families. But oftentimes, we put at the center whatever our vocation or whatever we would provide materially. And then all the other things, like what activities our kids are part of, what church we're part of, uh, what other social spheres we're in, they all have to orbit around the almighty Uh, vocational choice. And I would suggest to you that the proper way is to have an eternal vision to God's glory. So God's glory now is the center and then my life must somehow serve God's glory. So that means the decisions I make about my job, the activities I'm part of, how I train my children, everything goes around God's glory rather than around something that's material, fleeting, and will be gone. And I know we could shake our head yes to this, but I also know how difficult it is to reorder our lives that way. Because it could mean downsizing it might actually mean that it's not a godly thing to always look for the next advance. And I know that's counterculture, especially here. I I mean, we all struggle with that. But God's glory is so much uh, more manifested with people who live according to those priorities, looking always to the eternal vision. That's just from a family level, but let's think about a church level. Our job is to mature together as a community of believers who love to worship their God, study His word, and proclaim His gospel those aren't just words to me they're they're driving motivating forces so all the ministries that we do we're really not trying to compete with other churches we really can't in most respects we don't have the bells and whistles god bless us with tons of things but we're not doing them because we want to be like another church or compete with another church we're doing them because we believe that they support that mission and vision and so think in terms of purposes for why we do what we do whatever it is and how it feeds that and i would suggest to you that it's ultimately with an eternal vision in view And so there are ways in which the details now had to look more or have to shore up more, even in our church's life. I would love to come to a point, by the way, when within five years from now, uh, we could be debt-free, five to seven years, be debt-free, have 50% of all of our budget go towards outward missions. And I don't mean just foreign missions, local missions, so forth. At least 50% of what we take in will go out for that. At the same time, we could plan a church. We would have K through 12 developed, and then we would start what's called a. Uh, what I would, I'm, I'm figuring out what to call it, but it's church-based uh, theological institute, which is in the church for all of you, whoever you are, regardless of what degree you have now. It doesn't matter. There'll be 10 core classes. Three would be beginner level. Three would be intermediate, and four would be more advanced. And then we would have them interspersed between Sunday school and an evening program where you, through the course of your time at the church, will go through all ten of these core areas, regardless of what you're going to do with it. It's just helping you in your discipleship process and ultimately is moving you towards joining that process and multiplying other disciples. So a more formal look, and I don't mean so formal that it becomes cold, but something that has more purpose and intentionality behind it that promotes the mission that I've just shared with you that our small groups would also promote it. They're all around the word of God that teaches us how to glorify God, that we might worship him, we have to know him better. And so work towards this end, so that in five years we see that, but in then 10 years, we are able to plant two or three other churches like this. Not exactly like it, but with the same mindset, the same goals. And then within 20 years, it, we would see this advance to the point of 10 or 15 other churches in the area, in a, in a wider, maybe publishing ministry, a more formal teaching ministry. Things that are different, maybe outside the box. I don't mean a seminary. I mean a discipleship institute that helps fuel other movements with other churches. It doesn't even have to be just our denomination. We're not the be-all, end-all in this. But we can catch a vision for this kind of picture in 5, 10, 15 years and see that what you're doing now in the details is worth that bigger long-term vision that we're working towards. Hopefully, as leadership, we can give you better pictures as time comes of where we are in that process. But for you, for us, let's be working at the areas of our own personal responsibility that are so important to the bigger movement that God will do through us. And notice I said that God will do through us. And by the way, I don't think it means a massive church. I think within maybe twice the size as we are now, or a little less, we ought to be planting another church. I have no desire whatsoever to be a pastor of a church of several thousand people. No desire. None whatsoever. So, when we're at a five or six hundred member level, why don't we plant another church based on the geographic demographics of the church? Let's start another church, a whole church, somewhere else. Now, these are the kinds of visions that we want to see happen. And I think we would be much more effective with a bunch of two to three hundred member churches all around Kansas City than one big, huge church. These are just little pictures of what I think God can do through this body. And I like how Abraham was driven to do things that didn't make a lot of sense up front because he saw something bigger that he was going to be part of. And it wasn't about Abraham's personal little kingdom. It was about the kingdom of God spread and the nations affected by this simple pagan guy who got called by God at an old age to have a son. He didn't end up personally owning any more ground than his gravesite. For us to have that kind of perspective, I hope you are as excited about that as I am. It makes me tick. Finally, I would close with this thought. The last three verses only mention one component of each of these individuals' lives, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And I think the common tie is that faith that God gives them defeats the fear of their physical death. In other words, they were not, uh, for all the physical blessings they received, they were not uh, ensnared or entrapped by it all being gone when they were going to die. In fact, what they say at the end of their life reveals that they have a long term or a long view to things. God's future redemptive work and they want their legacy to be on their deathbed for all their foibles they want it to be God's glory to come in the generations this is what is meant very briefly when it says by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau not ones that he would personally see but as he is dying he recognizes that this godly line this covenantal faithfulness of God that's being displayed needs to go on and so he prays for a blessing to be upon Jacob and Esau so he looks to the future and is not entrapped by the end of his own time on earth. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the, over the head of his staff. So here's Jacob, uh, nearing the end of his life, takes the sons of Joseph, and that's a great story if you have time to read it sometime, where he switches hands on Joseph's sons and shows this amazing uh, act of blessing. But the bigger picture there is that as he's dying, he recognizes <coughs> the generational perpetuation of the faith that god will work and his focus is on the long view not necessarily a legacy for himself but god's legacy in verse 22 by faith joseph at the end of his life may and probably the best character of all these individuals made mention of the exodus of the israelites and gave directions concerning his bones i love this visionary here's joseph ready to die he recognizes that he lives in egypt with all of his uh, his family but he doesn't want to stay in Egypt, even though things have been great for Joseph and he's had a privileged life since he had been there. He doesn't want his people, his family, to get comfortable there because God has a better vision for them. In fact, I'm going to tell you people, is what he's saying, I want to make sure that my bones get buried in the promised land. And all he's saying really is, uh, when I die, let not the long-term vision that God has for us to bring glory to himself, let that not die also and so each generation had to inform the next generation we've got to bring father joseph's bones back to the promised land and it gave them a constant vision of something beyond something to move towards and forth faith defeats our personal fear of physical death with a vision of god's future redemptive work and i think that's true even down to the individual life here lived brothers and sisters i encourage you as by the example of abraham and his offspring that it is God's gift of faith that allows us to obey him when things seem impossible or difficult or we're incapable. And also, ultimately, it helps us have a vision for the future that overrides our personal legacy and establishes a legacy that wants to see God's glory happen in every generation that comes after us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this work of faith you've done in the lives of all who have believed.